This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Chris Menard, CFO of BlueSnap, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 504. It's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to CFO Steve Coffrin of EMJ Corporation, a billion-dollar construction services company. EMJ was once known for building many of the nation's malls, but more recently has found growth inside the renewable energy sector. CFO Steve Coffrin shares his customer-centric mindset and explains how EMJ is opening a new chapter of growth. After these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. Diverse background and these diverse opportunities to uh, really strengthen 
trajectory where most people when they go to school or get out of the school they, they work in the accounting finance function and work their way up um, into a CFO type position. Mine has been uh, non-linear in that sense. And I'll, I'll explain more uh, throughout our discussion today. Okay, great. I, I just want to point out to up front here, Steve, that you have an interesting uh, set of skills as a communicator. And I know we're going to perhaps touch on uh, a book that you've recently authored, but you also do a real public speaking. Um, often this is the missing piece to many uh, finance leaders. Uh, and I'm wondering, when did you first uh, discover those skills? Maybe it was even back uh, before college, but um, were you always a good communicator? Uh, I mean, I probably wasn't always a good communicator. When I first started, I, I was 16 years old when I first started a company. And um, I was doing that. I was young. I was meeting with people who were far older than me. And many of my customers were homeowners. And uh, these, these were executive CEOs uh, in this company that had a lot of money to be able to buy my services. And um, what I found during that time period is that I really had to step out of my comfort zone and learn how to communicate with people. And those skills really carried forward um, as I got into public accounting and then eventually uh, started doing more public speaking. But I'll tell you that the first time I did uh, a public speaking gig, it was for a garden club. And uh, it's a group of um, older individuals, and there was about 10 of them, and it was in a very casual setting. But I can tell you, I was very, very nervous. But what I found, Jack, is um, any time that I'm out of my comfort zone, any time that I'm doing something that's really scary and really hard, I know I'm on the right path. And with public speaking, it's no exception. It's, it's very scary, uh, very difficult for me to force, to force myself to get in front of a group of people and, and speak. But as I did uh, more and more, and I made my fair share of mistakes, uh, I was able to strengthen that capability, which is a dividend to the CFO role. Another uh, tier of duty that you had uh, as well is, in fact, you, you built a pretty, uh, uh, you know, robust uh, consulting group as well. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So after Ernst Young, um, I realized that there's a big gap in the industry. And uh, one of my clients, so when, when I was working in public accounting, one of my clients was a, a multi-billion dollar financial services company. And they were, uh, they were acquired by a big... Uh, big LBO shop, uh, KKR, Big Friday Equity Company. And they were going through a lot of restructuring and through a lot of strategy. And while uh, in my role at Ernst uh, Young, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of their managers and management overall. And I would ask them oftentimes, I'd say, what, what are the, the types of reports or uh, key performance indicators that you're looking at to monitor the success of your strategies and to determine whether or not this restructuring and this implementation of the strategy is, is working out well. And a few of them would show me these reports, and they were just, they were oftentimes in Excel format, and it was uh, row one through 350 and column A through AAV or whatever. And it's just tons and tons of data and tons of uh, metrics. And it, it really, uh, it's as probably as perplexed as they were as far as what to really monitor and, and how strategy and finance really tie together. So that's when I decided uh, it was time for me to get out there and make my mark on the world. I, I started a strategic financial management consulting firm 
And the, the idea behind that was tying those two functions together, strategy and finance, marrying those two together. And uh, DAT had an opportunity to work with a lot of different firms and um, executives across the country for about nine years. Now, was it, uh, it's not a stretch to guess that perhaps EMJ was it first a, uh, a client before you joined them? Yes. So EMJ Corporation, that's where I work now in the CFO of Jack. They hired me initially to do a client experience uh, strategy um, engagement. So I came into the firm and I, I helped them develop tools and resources and the processes and really look at the business activities to understand how they can enhance their client experience. Well, as I started getting into this engagement, um, I really I realized that the corporate strategy uh, was misaligned. So with, with client experience, there's a lot of talk in client experience, but client experience is a strategy. So it's, it's not a separate initiative. It is part of the strategy. It's part of where we compete and how we compete. And so what I realized is that there was a big disconnect between the corporate strategy and the client experience engagement that I was doing. And that's where I recommended building um, those together into one cohesive strategy. And so I, I started doing that work. I was in that Curious about uh, that uh, client service. We're speaking a great deal to uh, CFOs about uh, customer success, customer centric processes, uh, and, and, and we can perhaps touch on that with you. But first, tell us a little bit about the EMJ today. Who are its customers? Are they largely commercial businesses? Yeah, so EMJ Corporation focuses focuses really in two areas, uh, construction and um, energy. And so on the construction side, a lot of our clients are developers or uh, corporate clients. I mean, our company has been around for 50 years. We've built many of the malls across America. Um, we, we build uh, roads and coals and, and other type of retail chains across the country. And so we've had a, a big success rate in, in the industrial space On the other side, we have a, a company called Sidwell Energy, and it's a wholly owned subsidiary of ours. And that company is really interesting, and it, it, it goes out and it builds uh, renewable energy sources. So, uh, really specifically, wind. Um, we do a lot of wind farms and, uh, and solar. So, we do a lot of solar uh, utility scale projects. And right now, we have a new subsidiary that we created and is fully uh, up and running out in Australia. So I returned from a, a trip out in Australia checking out that company. It's headquartered in, in Sydney. And we have uh, two large scale, utility scale projects under construction. And just to give you an idea of the scale of these projects, uh, one of them is um, 950 acres of a solar farm with over 450,000 panels and modules. And that's one of our smaller jobs. And the other one has about 900,000 to a million uh, solar module panels. So that, those are the two companies underneath the EMJ Corporation banner uh, that we're really focusing on. And we have some other related subsidiaries underneath those. Um, so that, that's our business in a nutshell. 
that's, that's helpful. Thank you. I wanted to um, just touch on uh, what you were speaking there. There was like a disconnect uh, between uh, client service and, and client strategy, perhaps, if I'm stating that correctly. And I think a lot of finance leaders are discovering this in different industries. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that maybe in broader terms, not getting too specific with us. But here's what, what uh, we see happening. I mean, so many finance leaders today are trying to get a better fix on sort of the uh, instruments of growth, the levers of growth within their firms. And, uh, of course, what they've discovered is the customer relationship, the customer experience. If they can just begin to measure that and examine that, more closely, uh, they will discover ways to grow those relationships. And that's what many finance leaders, I think, have begun to crack the code on. And maybe that's not related to what you're up to, but maybe there are some uh, parallels here. Um, and, and any thoughts on what I just shared? Can you, can you share a little more on what you were getting at there? Yes, absolutely. So when I think about strategy, I mean, oftentimes we hear strategy, we hear phrases from Michael Porter that data and strategy and data to build the competition. And we hear about strategy frameworks that are highly uh, centric on competitors in the competitive marketplace. Well, I've done a lot of research. I've worked with a lot of companies. I've done a lot of strategy uh, sessions and strategy engagements with companies, both small and large. And during this time, and again, over the course of several decades, uh, several decades doing this type of work, I realized that there was a troubling trend. And really, that trend was, number one, the customer was missing from the strategy. And literally, some companies would go through an entire strategic planning session over the course of a number of days, and they would come up with um, restraints, weaknesses, opportunities, where I think they need to swap framework, or they would list out some competitive advantages that they thought um, were unique to their specific company. And then they would come up with some cheeky uh, marketing language and incentive plan that they roll out. But oftentimes in that messaging and in those plans, the customer was missing. So when I decided to write my latest book, Outsizing, it, I, I focused primarily on the customer. So I actually, um, the first chapter talks about overcoming the human side of strategy. The second chapter jumps right into building um, customer-centric organizations. And as CFOs, you know, we're not over the business development necessarily, the business development and selling function of the business, um, typically. However, the CFO has a, is playing a bigger and bigger role every single day in the, the strategy room of companies. And it's important that CFOs um, are really dialed into um, the customer. The customer is, is the, should be the primary driver of strategy. And here's what I mean. Some companies, they go astray when they start developing their strategy, they focus on the customer more than focusing on the customer and external forces and how to combat that. Um, you lose sight on really what drives the business. So instead, I encourage people to look at the customer, look at what, what types of behaviors, uh, what types of influences, market influences are impacting the way customers buy. Okay. And there's a, there's a lot to it. Um, you can read a lot of overlap within the CFO world in how we can look at data analytics and how we can really understand and empathize with customers to understand their buying behavior and then make that the central focus of strategy. Because at the end of the day, um, 
strategy has to improve the customer. There has to be a marriage between strategy and finance, and that's how we capture value in our company. Let's ask you then um, about EMJ in regards to its relationships, its customers. What are the metrics that you're paying attention to to make certain uh, the relationships, the customer relationships, are flourishing and, and are headed in the right direction? Great. So, I mean, there's the, the traditional uh, metrics up front, the beginning part of the, the transaction where uh, with the customers where you can measure uh, win ratios or you can measure um, you, you can measure sales, right? Trending sales uh, type, type metrics. But really what we do is um, along the way we have multiple check-in points. And we, we send out surveys to our clients and it asks them about their experience with the firm. Um, we have follow-up surveys that we send out. And then there's this constant check-in with uh, leadership without throughout the firm. So what we found is that you know there's, there's metrics like the net promoter score out there and other similar customer uh, type uh, metrics, but you really have to combine uh, qualitative and quantitative and uh, combine those two types of metrics together and uh, to really understand where a customer is. So what I mean by that, like for example, the net promoter score, you know, if a company just relies on a score where they say how likely are you to refer a friend to uh, the company and then you measure it on a scale 1 through 10 and you say, okay, the 9 through 10, these are the champions and uh, the one through four or five or the detractors that are being in the middle, those are your net promoters. Um, so the, the danger of that is, you know, a one, a one client or a two client who ranks you very poorly, those people are screaming really, really loud. Okay? Um, so if you just look at, if you take an average or if you try to slice and dice this uh, on a number scale, you may, uh, you may be paying attention to the wrong customers, okay? Uh, the, the ones, the teams, the threes that have a horrible experience with your firm, they spread a lot of uh, bad publicity and, um, and, and poison out in the marketplace. So what we try to do is instead of just getting caught up on a singular metric, we try to have constant check-in points. We ask authentic questions, and um, we really we take this data and then we act upon it. And I think that's really the key. When you first stepped into the leadership role there, it would seem to me that you could finally have the opportunity really to create a finance function that was customer-centric or more customer-centric or more aligned with strategy. Um, and I'm curious whether there were steps that, you know, you immediately took uh, within the first 90 days or uh, what you might have done having that opportunity to sort of structure a finance team a little differently. Uh, whether it was adding skills, whether it was reassigning people, what, what, anything? Yeah, that's great. Great question, though. So when I came into EMJ Corporation, they had a strong foundation. They, like I said, they've been in business for 50 years. They have a strong record, uh, a strong uh, presence in the community, and they have the offices out there uh, located throughout the country. There's a good culture that exists. Really, my goal when I came into the finance function and the accounting function of the business is that it needed a, a, a 
refreshing or a reinvention. So I focused on really three priorities. And the first priority was to reduce the number of layers. So there were a number of layers all the way from the CFO down to the VP, and the VP had a, a layer below that, and there's controllers and, and so on and so forth, all the way down to the bottom. And what I realized is that there was too many layers uh, where it, which was impeding the information flow up and down the accounting and finance function. So real-time data, uh, real feedback wasn't occurring throughout this function, and that was problematic. Um, number two uh, is really focusing on making the, the finance function uh, more simple, reducing complexity. So we had um, about 27,000 chart of accounts when I first came on, and that was obviously a reported nightmare we were reporting across was to really look at these chart of accounts and understand what will we really try to get out of the, the finance reporting and the FPA function of the business. And by simplifying uh, reporting, by simplifying the metrics, simplifying the chart of accounts and reporting, it freed up time of our team to really focus on what truly really matters, the customer, which I'll get into in a minute. And then the, the last part, which is ongoing, is building the capabilities of specific, but I'm going to ask it this way. Is there one specific metric that maybe you realized needed to be more broadly shared across the organization? And we see this with net promoter scores, I guess. Um, organizations have been pretty, some of them have been very forward thinking in terms of how to make that number uh, everybody's concern. What about, uh, what about EMJ? Monitoring 
on the balance sheet and all the inflows and outflows on the, the payment of cash flows versus typically more. So when I came into the company, I realized that I needed to, I needed to put a singular metric, which is cash flow, monitoring cash flow, into play. So that revamped the way that we did reporting, and that revamped the way that we do our forecast, or our forecast instead of stopping at operating income or some variation thereof, uh, getting down to a free cash flow of the business. And that's been um, a huge mind shift and a huge uh, overall shift in the, the company and how we look at value creation and uh, strategic decisions. When we come back, we'll ask CFO Steve Coffrin for a finance strategic moment after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Now, we always like to ask for uh, what we refer to as a finance strategic moment, which, uh, and it sounds like you've had a few in only recent days, uh, but this is where your lines of sight into the organization allowed you to see an opportunity or a risk, and, you know, your response was to do things differently or, or to... to to quickly come up with an answer to a problem that might be out there, whatever it might have been. Anything come to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Yes, yeah, so I'll circle back to uh, the comment I made or about Australia, being in Australia and having a presence there and an office open there. I mean, a, a lot of CFOs are faced with strategic decisions, whether to divest of entities or invest in entities or um, expand geographically or, or whatever these types of financial decisions are that they're trying to make. And um, a real a real moment for me that I can think of uh, just in the, the recent past is that we had a team and we have a team of very smart people over uh, at Signal Energy. The leadership is incredibly smart, forward-thinking, and they brought uh, a proposal of entering the, the Australian space. And Together with that, among a, a strategic plan, among um, considering cultural difference, geopolitical type risks, and all those types of analysis, there was a financial model. Well, the financial model, and, and this is a financial model that I, I see a company's strategy and strategic decisions all the time, was very static. It was, a, you know, it was an Excel-based model. Um, it had some assumptions in there. And at the end of the day, it, it ended up with one number, right? And that number was being evaluated to determine whether or not this was a good business decision. So really applying this forward-looking strategic financial leadership position uh, into the decision-making, uh, I was able to enhance this model by incorporating a, a Monte Carlo-type uh, model. So instead of having fixed variables or fixed assumptions, 
whether it's a gross rate, whether it's a cost of revenue, whether it's a, an SG&A uh, type forecast, you know, I was able to go in there and have highs and lows and apply different standard deviations and different curves to these, these items and run a Monte Carlo simulation. And essentially the Monte Carlo simulation was taking all these variables through these, these uh, curves and standard deviations and it was coming up with a range of value based on a, a set of probabilities. So before the static model said, if we go into Australia, our, our low, low probability scenario is this, our medium probability scenario is this, and our best case is this. Well, I was able to come in with a, the Monte Carlo simulation, really tighten it up and, and tell the team, well, look, there's a 70% chance that we'll have a, a return on our investment of this and it'll produce this much cash flow, and we'll need this much CapEx. Um, or there's an, if you want a, an 80% probability, these are the numbers that we're going to hit. It is really, instead of just saying, hey, this is my, my best, best case scenario, or I really, really believe in it, and using vague terminology like that, I was able to speak and articulate um, based on probabilities of the model and saying, hey, I'm 80% sure that we'll hit these numbers, or 70% sure that we'll hit these targets. And that was a, a, a beautiful point for me, somebody who's nerdy and loves strategy and finance, to see those two things come together to make a real-life decision. And now we're off and running in the, the, the operations are successful. <laughs> great, great anecdote. Thank you for sharing that one. Uh, we're going to move to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and advise future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you now about finance and business? So the biggest thing that excites me is just this this reinvention of the CFO and a reinvention of the, the finance department overall. So I, I just gave a I, I taught a, a seminar the other day um, for one of our um, financial uh, chapters out here in uh, Chattanooga where I live. It is a four-hour session and it's called the Strategic Financial Leadership Session. And during that uh, that time period. I talked about the finance function. And if you look at what's going on in our finance function, um, a lot of the compliance task-oriented uh, roles that exist in the business are starting to be replaced by machine learning, by AI, and by other types of technology. And what we're seeing is that these jobs will be replaced over time um, by these types of technologies. But really, um, it's not something that the accounting and finance functions should fret about, per se. They should fret about it if, they, if they're unwilling to change. But I see it as there's huge opportunity for our uh, function to really grow and to expand in totally new directions. And what I mean by that is, you know, as financial leaders, we have to be um, storytellers of the numbers. Um, we have to understand how strategic decisions have to be tied back to um, finance. And that's really, if you want to know what gets me excited, you talk strategy and finance, those two things together, uh, that's where I come alive. And um, I'm very, very passionate about that because accountants aren't green shade people in the back of the, the office just crunching numbers anymore. They're, uh, they're, they're leaders, they're thinkers, they're storytellers, and they're providing financial information that allows the, the organization to go act and create value. So. Earlier I asked you uh, about when you first stepped into the role and how you would architect a, a team to uh, sort of realize some of the 
strategies and the alignments you've been, you, you underscore so well. Um, here I get to ask, there must have been something. Uh, again, uh, and it's interesting, having a consulting and an advisory background, you step into a CFO leadership role where suddenly you're the leader now. You're not the, the outsider. You're, you're part of the team. You're part of the company. Um, what is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you as you took on the reins of that leadership role? Well, I, I think it's, it's creating buy-in and uh, creating consensus among, among the team. I mean, you could have the smartest individual, uh, the most talented individual, the most technical individual come into uh, a new role as a CFO, um, but without creating buy-in, without creating empathy, among the team and, and really getting to know them on a personal level, it's very difficult to make any type of change. And that's really been um, a balancing act for me. And a, a struggle to tell you the truth is, you know, coming into an organization in that type of role where there's a lot going on, uh, my days are full just like everybody else's with meetings and interruptions and uh, there's just a lot of activity and a lot of responsibility. So what I try to focus on, and I, there's definitely room for improvement, is, is getting to know the team and getting to know individuals on a personal level. Because I think when we understand and we can empathize with people on a personal level, we'll get to know um, really what their goals and their objectives are, and then that ties nicely into uh, what we do as professionals. If we just try to go in and, and cram things onto people and, uh, and force them into our mental models and our mental boxes, it's just it's, it's very difficult to uh, lead. So I think getting to know them personally uh, is, is something that I'll continue to work on and strive to become better um, as a leader. So I, I just want to uh, touch on something with you, Steve, here, because what's interesting is that uh, you, don't, you don't sound like an accountant, and yet I know you have a master's in, a, in, a, in accounting. You studied accounting from a very uh, early uh, undergrad. You studied accounting. So... At first, you, you identify probably strongly with that set. Many finance leaders arrive in the uh, C-suite, and, and they know the language of accounting. They don't, however, can't speak the language of strategy as effectively as what I think you've been doing with us. And I'm, I'm curious, when you arrived there, uh, just about the accounting function, if you can touch on that uh, for us, and uh, was there a controller did you, did you have to, uh, you know, appoint a controller? What, what, how did you get your accounting function in shape? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's, it's funny that you say that because when I told my family, when I, as an entrepreneur, that I, I went back to school and I, I went and I pursued a degree in accounting. That's where my undergrad is, my, my master's in accounting, and I have a CPA and all this stuff. But I, when I told my family I was going down that route, they looked at me confused, and they thought, Steve is going to be an accountant? I mean, that is just, that is the most oddball, uh, weird thing. But um, I, do, I don't think, um, I think the bias or the what people think about accounts isn't necessarily true across the board. And we're seeing this come alive more and more. Um, but really where it comes, like when I came into EMJ Corporation, uh, we had a, a VP of finance and accounting. And underneath that, we had a, a corporate controller, 
And uh, underneath that, we had uh, uh, we had other functions um, grouped together. And really, what I found to be successful is um, I split those roles, the VP of Finance, into a VP of Finance and a VP of FP&A. And then on the controller level, uh, instead of having one controller over multiple uh, functions and those functions over multiple companies, uh, I decided to do it more of a divisional type structure because I wanted each controller to be over um, a particular business and to have a dotted line to the president of that business. So the idea there is that the controllers report up to the VP of, of Finance and they uh, are supported by the VP of FP&A, but they're also, uh, the controllers are extremely powered, empowered in their business and they have the opportunity to collaborate with the business or with the president and provide the tools and resources that they, they needed. So I went much more of a, a divisional approach and uh, splitting out the, the finance, uh, the VP of finance and the FP&A. So uh, an FP&A team could focus on the future and the VP of finance could focus on the historical and the compliance and everything else uh, it was, was successful in our company structure at least. Well, uh, we want to. We always like to ask a, uh, for a personal habit or something about your daily routine that might reveal uh, a contribution to your professional success. What? Tell us something about your habits and your your daily routine. Well, yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm a crazy I'm a crazy guy. I I like to run. So I get up really early because it's difficult for me to get home and uh, and try to go run or work out. I have two little kids, a son who's three and a daughter who's six and a wife and uh, when I get home I like to have family time and be with them so I get up really early and I I recently completed the Nashville Marathon and um, up to that point I was training for it so on Fridays I would do my long runs and they'd be 20 mile runs so I'd get up about three in the morning and go out for these long distance jogs and uh, during that time uh, people ask me, well, what do you listen to? Are you listening to some kind of rock music or some type of music to pump you up? And when I tell them what I'm listening to, they laugh because, in fact, I listen to Audible on my uh, phone, and I listen to audiobooks. And I'll listen to a, a business strategy book, or I'll listen to a finance book, or I'll listen to a biography. And sometimes I have to literally stop in the middle of my run because I just came across a great part of the book, and I knew that at a note, and uh, so that, that's kind of a weird quirk about me. I'll, I'll get up and run early in the morning. I listen to audiobooks. That's how I, I continue to keep my, my education um, fresh, and uh, that's, it also allows me to clear my mind because with work, it's just so crazy and so much stress, and it's busy, and there's a lot going on. I need a mental reset, and running is really the way that I reset, and it allows me to, to think of new things and come up with new ideas. And that's also a, a great segue to books uh, as you listen to them or read them. Do you have one you'd like to recommend? Well, if I may, I'd like to recommend two. There's two of my favorite books, and I'm looking at my bookshelf right now in my office. And the first one is Essentialism, and that's by Greg McCallan. And I, I like that book because it, it teaches principles of how to simplify our lives. Oftentimes we think as leaders the busier we are, the, the more successful or the higher our status symbol is. And this book really combats that and goes contrary to that idea and says simplify, focus on the most essential things, and say no to what isn't creating value. So I think that's great for CFOs. I think it's great for anybody in the business to read that. 
The second book is more of a fun book. It's called How to Fly a Horse by Kevin Ashton. And uh, that book talks about creation. And the idea is that some people think you have to be extremely gifted and talented or born with this creative side of you. Um, but he really rebutes that uh, point, and he talks about how we're all creative. Just creativity shows up in the form of hard work. So that, that's a great uh, book that I'd like to recommend as well. Great. We haven't had either of those before, so thank you for sharing those. And finally, we're up to our last question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Yes, over the next 12 months, my priorities are really to, um, to, to focus on building the data analytical uh, capabilities of my team. And I, I believe data analytics, we are just on the, the forefront of this whole movement. And uh, we've, we've made great strides of collecting data, interpreting data, and, and organizing data. And now it's, um, it's continuing to do that, digitize our processes, um, allow data collection to occur in a clean and, and pragmatic way, but then also building the capabilities of our team so they can take this data, interpret it, and then engage in value creation activities. And I, I believe that as I focus on this over the next 12 months, we're going to have, uh, it's going to allow us to create a competitive advantage because we're going to be able to target specifically um, on the right types of customers, and we're going to we're going to be able to create better experiences for them, which will generate more work and more profit and so on and so forth. And it overall, just builds our culture up and, and allow us to execute successfully. So that is my priority, data analytics um, and building out that capability. Steve Coffrin, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you very much for having me. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.